This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis, back in the hot seat after a week of being suppressed by the corrupt left-wing establishment that is this podcast. With me today is iColumnist and Oh God What Now regular Hannah Fern. Morning, Hannah. Good morning. Hannah, over the weekend, Trust released this 4,000-word essay, which is roughly 100 words for every day she was in office. <laughs> I, uh, I know memories are short, uh, weeks a long time in politics, blah, 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 but... Has she no shame? It's remarkable. I quite enjoyed it, really, for a laugh. <laughs> what surprised me, really, was, or made me most furious, I suppose, was not all of the stuff around the left-wing establishment, those well-known <laughs> commies, the global financiers and, uh, yeah. you know, monetary yeah, policy markets. The left-wing capitalists, which crushed her. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was ridiculous. But what was really shocking, I think, was this statement that, you know, she had a mandate no, she never mm. had a mandate. And that is the point. She had no mandate from the country for this. She also had not prepared any of you know the forces that she's describing for it. So in, in both senses, there was no platform for it. Mm. She, she did not do her job. And it's really phenomenal to see somebody with such little shame and contrition and worse, sort of no understanding, it seems to me, of how she got herself in this position. There was a really interesting piece by David Gork in the New Statesman over the weekend uh, responding to the piece, quite short and very blunt. It's worth a read if, if you've got time, listeners. But basically, she uh, claims she was insufficiently briefed. But he demonstrates how that's just completely untrue and unpicks all of her claims. So she seems to have built this kind of story around herself to protect herself from that you know, obviously incredibly vulnerable position that she screwed up on a phenomenal mm. scale. But to come out of it with this sort of, I don't know, arrogance and lack of reflection, mm. it's really frightening. I don't know. I just cannot understand that personality trait personally. <laughs> I mean, I'm the sort of person that questions everything I'm doing all the time and I, I don't get it. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, it's a weird point of admiration I have for some of these <laughs> yeah. people like sort of, uh, you know, Liz Truss is joining the list of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump of just not having any anxiety whatsoever when yes. I'm constantly so yes. anxious if I offend anyone a little bit and I've never crashed financial markets at any point, not knowingly. I, I do think most of us are like that. I think that we are the normal people and yeah. <laughs> this is a very, a very strange way to, to respond to something that is a huge professional embarrassment and, uh, you know, a dangerous mistake that's had consequences for so many people. 
Another thing I found strange about it is she's sort of made out how she's breaking her silence, but it's only been a hundred days. In the past, former prime ministers tended to have a more prolonged period of, you know, just shutting up after yeah. it. Has uh, Boris Johnson's desire for the limelight emboldened her? And now looking forward, could her return play into his hands as he rallies this sort of comeback he seems to be doing? Actually, I don't think it will because it's it's kind of, I think that the two remind us of the other. So the fact that he's knocking around reminds us that the Conservative Party only picked her because they were so desperate to get rid of Johnson because of his behaviour and his own self-aggrandizement and, and the mistakes that, and the phenomenal mistakes that he had made as well. It reminds also us of, you know, the fact that we're on the third prime minister in recent months, let's be honest. It's, you know, less than a year. And the the party's still in complete disarray. So having them circling is not only bad for each of their chances of any kind of return, but also really bad for the Conservative Party, which is obviously in a terrible mess. And Matt Hancock turning up on Dancing on Ice last night <laughs> surprised people of Twitter, I noticed. Obviously, just as when he was on um, I'm Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, there's a lot of anger from people who mm. suffered during the pandemic that he has basically been turned into kind of second-rate reality celeb. So all three of those circling and, and saying ridiculous things is bad news for the Conservative Party when they're just trying to get to a position where they can at least look like a competitive force going into the next general election. Yeah, other than highlight the mess that is the Conservative Party, is it going to do anything to the to the makeup of the Tories? Are they going to shift their positions at all? And why would Sunak, for example, change his mind on anything due to the words of someone who he was essentially brought in to fix their mess? I don't think it will change the official position of the cabinet and Sunak as prime minister. Um, as we're heading towards the budget, I, exactly, as exactly as you've just said, why would you change your strategy when your strategy is to resolve the problems that this woman cannot see that she was responsible for creating in a in significant part? But it does kind of lead to probably to a bit of internal positioning within the Conservative Party. And it reminds us watching this to kind of look out for the headbangers or you remember we used to call them swivel-eyed loons um <laughs> you know there was a couple of pieces in the spectator yesterday defending her from these kind of you know factions of the party who really genuinely believe that the reason that our uk global ranking in terms of you know financial stability is down the bottom of the toilet basin is because of everything but brexit mm. when anyone sensible can just look at what's happened in the last few years everybody's been facing difficulties re recovering from the pandemic but we're the only ones that funnily enough simply can't recover and it's because of brexit and additionally because of trust so interesting to see how it's causing rifts within the conservative party but again that's i think only going to lead to their own internal problems i can't see it changing the position of the cabinet so Truss is doing an interview with The Spectator that's coming out this afternoon as we record. Do you expect to see much more fallout from that? Or, I mean, do you think it's been pretty well covered in 4,000 words, as we said, and it's just going to get whipped it into the Tory psychodrama vortex that we're in at the moment? I guess it depends what she says. She might come out with something else, <laughs> something even more <laughs> ludicrous. It does depend on how you know she comes across as a figure. But I don't think she'll make herself look any better than she does off the back of a K 
obviously carefully considered, if strangely concluded essay. Mm. Uh, you know, th there are people in the Conservative Party who really feel like she's been, you know, treated incredibly badly, but they are the minority. Uh, and I don't think, yeah, attempting to this kind of rehabilitation so soon, when her party's already in, in such a state, um, it's really bad planning, really bad idea. And, uh, you know, there, there must be some anger as well um, within party ranks about what she's doing to their chances of ever recovering from this um, huge slump in the polls that they face. On the other fallouts that they're facing as well, is the, the Harvey scandal going to continue to pose questions, do you think, over the next few days? I think com uh, combined with Raab, it does. Mm. So Sunak's been very slow to act on both. So he, you know, days and days and days of people calling for him to act on Zahawi. He waited around until the, the, you know, he had the evidence that he said he needed to to do the job of getting rid. On Rab, we're kind of in the same position. He's saying the same things. He's repeating the same mistakes. And he's now facing calls from a number of senior figures, uh, including one cabinet minister uh, uh, unnamed yesterday, saying that he has to go. I do think this does really matter. There are, have been some press reports over the last few days mentioning that, you know, it raises questions uh, around this sort of grey area between managing in a high pressure environment and bullying. I couldn't disagree with that more strongly. I've only ever worked in a high pressure environment in journalism. And um, you can tell the difference between bullies and good managers a long way off. Bullying has nothing to do with good management in high pressure environments. And I, I really despise those kind of justifications. And clearly, it sounds like he's been a horrific person to work for. No taxpayer money should be going to funding a salary of somebody who behaves like that uh, in public office. I, you know, I, I, he does need to go. But it makes Sunak look weak because once again, he is not taking those decisions. The most damning thing is that the Observer reported yesterday that there's a single complaint against Raab that was made by 27 staff at the Ministry of Justice together. So 27 individuals clubbed together and made a joint complaint. That is overwhelming evidence that there is a huge problem. So he it, he does look incredibly at risk, um, but Sunak looks weak for not acting immediately on something like that. Turning away from those scandals, we're seeing the biggest ever round of NHS strikes at the moment. And Sunak has been urged to intervene to broker a pay deal with nurses. Do you think he will? And could he actually sort out this situation at this point? Yes, I think I do. But I've been saying for a while that I think a deal is on the cards. The reason it's kind of dragged out so long is that, you know, the government doesn't want to be seen to concede. But I think that they're close to accepting that they have to. For a long time now, I would definitely say a month or more, um, the kind of political and moral upper hand has been on the part of the nurses. And the cost of living crisis means that ordinary people totally get why they're so frustrated and they're appalled at how you know much nurses have to struggle on the salaries they're on. They also have the kind of goodwill hangover from the COVID pandemic. So you know, the people are on the side of the nurses in a way that generally people have not been on the side of strikers in disputes past. And so he knows he's got to get through this. He knows he's got to see it off. Otherwise, it will rumble on for a year and he'll lose more support in, in, in allowing it to go on. So that's why I think a deal is likely. Although, to be fair, I have been saying that for about a month. So yeah. you know, maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I do think that it's inevitable. Whether it comes this week or not, it can't be far off. What more strike action are we going to see as well as this, uh, this NHS action at the moment? 
for quite a lot this week. We obviously had the rail strikes over the weekend. We've got ambulances, uh, ambulance crews um, early this week. We've then got physiotherapists coming up in the middle of the week. And towards the end of the week, we have academics as well. So there's a, you know, a lot of people out on strike. And also sometimes people you wouldn't think of as natural sort of strike leaders, so physios, who thinks of that as you know, a yeah. striking industry. So I think once we get to the point of having a large percentage of the UK workforce balloted at least or considering strike action we're in quite an interesting position for the government in terms of uh, the prime minister needing to sort out deals one thing which he might be able to try and turn into a bit of positive news for himself is brokering a deal on the northern ireland protocols do you think that will happen and what might it look like if that does happen in the next few days so I proceed my remarks here by saying I'm not an expert on uh, Northern Irish politics and the island of Ireland politics and so on. So uh, this is just my perspective on, you know, the, the kind of political optics of it all. But yeah, if this comes off, it will be really good news. I'm not sure that Sunak will be able to kind of bask in its glow if it comes off, because it is nevertheless the fact that we're still talking about the protocol is a constant reminder of how Brexit has been so badly handled um, since 2016. Um, But it could be a new start, maybe. Um, I think all of that depends on the behaviour of uh, people like the ERG. So they, you know, they really want to make sure that they're making their, themselves heard. That you know, this is kind, of, this is actually part of the trust effect. Probably, these kind of individuals continuing to shout from the back, you know, the back of the, the chamber. William Haig has apparently told them that they need to wind their necks in, basically, and allow this to to get on. So if that does happen, then there is some good news for Sunak, yes. Finally on domestic news, Grant Shapps has told energy providers to outline what plans they have to compensate people who had prepayment meters forcibly installed into their homes. What are what are groups calling for and what sort of offers do you expect to see? This is an interesting one because I mean they've had had to they've only admitted that this is going on because yeah. they've been caught out by the Times did an excellent undercover investigation and exposed the fact that they've been doing this, which they they had been banned from doing. Uh, and also they've been targeting vulnerable customers as well. So breaking into essentially breaking into the homes of elderly, disabled people and forcing them to go onto prepayment meters. And as you know, just to spell out what that means, that basically means you're potentially leaving a disabled person with no gas because they cannot afford to top up. So this is huge, and of course they deserve compensation. I think they will be offered some form of financial compensation because they have to admit the wrongdoing because they've been caught red-handed. What will that be? It probably should be in the form of the difference in gas prices because they are now forced to pay a higher tariff. You know, all writing off arrears would be an incredibly welcome thing to do, especially for those who are particularly vulnerable. But it's an awful position to to have ended up in. It does feel like almost like the absolute arse end of privatisation, that this is what you get. You know, the right to a warm home when you are disabled and vulnerable is something that we should really rally behind as a country, in my view. And the fact that it's possible to just force people to to live in a freezing cold property because they can't pay at that particular month is is um, gross. And yeah. yeah, they deserve they deserve full compensation. And let's hope that you know Shaps has been pretty positive on this and and, and come out you know fighting from the off and hearing about it. So that this does look like something that the government could actually achieve uh, on uh, for vulnerable people. So fingers crossed. <music> 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In international news, a, a Chinese balloon, which was, was definitely just being used to monitor weather patterns, which was <laughs> definitely. over the US. It definitely. Beijing said so, so it's true. Uh, which was floating over the US, was uh, shot down at the weekend. Why is a country like China still using balloons to spy on other countries? That is a good question, isn't it? So I went and had a, a nose around and I found a few experts talking about this. Apparently... First of all, they have a better view of the ground because they move more slowly. Okay. Secondly, they're cheap. And thirdly, satellites, which have been really, really popular for you know remote monitoring uh, and uh, spy work, essentially, for the last couple of decades, are now being targeted by really sophisticated lasers and other things that are called kinetic weapons, which I'm not quite sure what they are. But nevertheless, clearly they can be put out you know, by very sophisticated technology. So... Now, there seems to be this, apparently, there's this uh, trend towards using balloons because the shooting down of them, the exposure of them is kind of part of the tactics. So the embarrassment, the fact this has embarrassed the US that they found it in their airspace and it's caused this kind of diplomatic incident is apparently part of the tactics. It seems odd. It does sound like something out of a, you know, a bad bond, doesn't it? But nevertheless, that's why apparently so interesting a case of you know bad technology being better because it is bad basically yeah exactly yeah as a somewhat proud technophobe i uh i vaguely (laughs) respect respect for that i suppose uh what what fallout is there from this so the first big meeting that was due to take place uh between the us and china um for some time now between senior diplomat blinken has been cancelled. China calls the claim that this is their balloon, this is definitely them spying on US territory, just conjecture and has condemned the cancellation of the meeting. So is this a bit of an own goal? Maybe. Has it made it look like the US is overreacting? I'm not sure. It is all really to do with the kind of optics of geopolitics rather than what that balloon saw. I'm sure I didn't see very much at all, really, apart from some farms. But it's interesting that after finally getting to a place where a meeting under the Biden administration could take could take place, trying to repair some of the, you know, damaged relationships under Trump, well that's we're not there now. So it probably will have longer term implications, but it's a, that's over more than just the balloon, really. This is a sort of a useful tool to be talking about a balloon for both of them, I think. Yeah, the the optics, as you say, from both sides seem really strange to me because it feels really bizarre that China are using a balloon and thought, yeah, we can just float a balloon over. That'll be great. <laughs> then it, also the idea. Feels, it feels really strange. And also that America just were like, oh, what's that balloon? Oh, should we check it out? Can we get rid of it? Do we take it down? And they didn't really seem to know exactly what to do for a period as well. So it just feels, yeah, quite just quite rubbish 
from both of them. I it's would also say. Really, it's really <laughs> old school, really yeah. old school diplomacy over, you know, so it does feel quite sort of cheap bondy to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a strange image. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, finally, looking to the uh, to the situation in Ukraine, Zelensky has said the uh, the situation in the east of the nation is getting tougher. What's the latest from the conflict? Yeah, so Zelensky has been really clear that they're under sustained and quite difficult pressure in the Donbass region. So there's particular areas and cities, Donetsk and Bakhmut and uh, Lyman. Essentially, there are they've engaged now in fierce street battles uh, as Russia aims to win control of that whole region. It's been obviously um, Putin's aim for a long time to win control of that region. It provides important transport links, supply chains, and so on. It's also ideologically, you know, to do with Putin's claim that this has lost part of Russia. So this is really important to the future of the conflict. And you know, the fact that Zelensky's coming out and admitting that they this is you know now under um, significant threat there is, I think, an attempt to kind of remind uh, the West that this hasn't gone away, that Putin isn't, isn't, isn't going away on this issue. They've had some successes there before, uh, the Ukrainians, but now they're, they're struggling again. And Russia is apparently, according to military strategists, throwing basically as many troops at the problem as he can. And obviously, he's under pressure internally in, in Russia because so many young men are now engaged in this conflict. So, you know, I haven't I haven't heard much coming out of Moscow in the last few days about their response to, to this latest claim from, from Ukraine. Um that they're they're under pressure. But but it I wonder about that kind of rising pushback from ordinary Russians as well as more and more people are sent to the front line. There's speculation of increased assaults later this month. Where and when are those likely to unfold? Yeah, so again, across this whole Donbass region, Zelensky and his military planners are expecting a very large-scale offensive in sort of mid to late Feb. You know, they say, the Ukrainians say they do have the resources to hold them off, but obviously, you know, there's there's a lot going on internally uh, in Ukraine as well. So there are media reports of um, defence officials embezzling public funds to pay for rations for troops. So they're obviously struggling as well. And this kind of appeal to the West is really about making sure that we, uh, as Western, a group of Western nations who do not want to see Putin achieve his aims in this area, are providing sufficient resources and support to make sure that they can do whatever they can to to hold uh, Putin off. On that, Sunak had a call with Zelensky over the weekend. Does it look like there's going to be further action taken from ourselves or other Western countries in supporting Ukraine in the immediate future? Well, in the immediate future, it does still seem to be regarding equipment, provision, training and logistics. There are Ukrainian soldiers already training on Challenger 2 tanks in the UK. So we are doing a lot in terms of that kind of back preparedness. But I mean, what else can we do apart from that at this stage to do anything else would require, you know, cross nation support, it would be a big NATO discussion. It's not up to Sunak alone, to make those decisions, rightly so. So I mean, his conversation, I suspect, would be more likely about this kind of um, continued provision uh, of equipment and and the latest, um, you know, training techniques. Um, But if we were looking at anything more significant than that, I think we'd be a whole other conversation. I suspect the whole podcast would be about this one issue. Um, But yeah, that's it's sad to see 
you know when the rumors come out that it's it's not going so well it's you do wonder where where this is going to end and how many years it could last hannah so on a on a slightly somber note there thank you thank you for joining me this morning i uh, appreciate you uh you getting up early to talk to me thank you for having me Listeners, thank you for listening. Don't forget you can support us on Patreon for £3 a month and if you want to hear episodes early and ad-free. Plus, you get a shout-out on the show. Uh, here's Hannah with some now. Thank you to Matt Hammond, Ravin Tambamutu, Anne Skirfield and Jill McFarthing. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining us this morning in the bunker. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Hannah Fern. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the group editor was Andrew Harrison. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>